The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you will, and open them to Revelation chapter 3. And the text for today's message is verses 14 through 22. And I know that you are uh, familiar with that because we've had several messages from this portion of Scripture. And uh, it's a very important one because of the condition that churches are in today. And this passage reflects, I believe, what we see around us in churches in Rohnert Park, Santa Rosa, and throughout our country. Uh, this is the Lord's letter to the seventh church of the churches of Asia. It is the letter to the church at Laodicea. So if you'll look in your Bibles at Revelation 3, we'll start again at verse number 14, and we'll read the text of the letter once again. This letter is addressed to the pastor that is the angel of the church, verse number 14, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increase with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see." As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. This is the last of seven letters that were sent to seven churches in first century Asia Minor. In the scriptures, the number seven is a number of completion often used to represent the whole. And so these are churches that are typical of all the churches that you would find in the first century. But not only that, they're typical of churches that we find in all centuries from the time that these letters were written until the time that Christ returns for his people. After this chapter, the narrative changes to scenes in heaven where the church is now in the presence of God. And then it shifts back to the earth uh, as it describes the world going through seven years of terrible tribulation. Now, several weeks ago, we saw in the letter to the church at Philadelphia that Christ promised that he would remove the church from the world before that time of tribulation comes, before the reckoning, the true church of Christ will be taken out. The return of Christ in Scripture is known as the Day of the Lord. And that is a broad term that encompasses 
the rapture of Christians and other events such as the tribulation, Armageddon, the millennial kingdom, the destruction of the earth and fire, the creation of the new heavens and new earth, and also the new Jerusalem, the city of new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven from God. As the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we look forward to this time that's known as the last days and the day of the Lord. To us, it's a blessed hope because we know that when Christ comes, He will take His true church out of this world and He fulfill, will fulfill the promise that He made to His disciples when He left. He said, I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I will receive you unto Myself and I'll take you to be with Me and live with Me forever. But in the meantime... While we're waiting on Christ to return, he's left this world with a plan. And that plan is for the expansion of his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. And his plan is that the church is the one that is designated. The church are the preachers that will take the gospel to other parts of the world. Now before God created the world, he planned who his people would be. He chose them. And we learn in the Revelation that their names were written in the book of life. And his plan is to save these people from hell and to take them to heaven through the belief of the gospel. And these chosen ones of God are found in every century since, since the beginning of the world. And so since the first century, there's been a church in the world that preaches the gospel message of Christ to the people that he has chosen. Now, the true church, then, is an assembly of like-minded believers who agree that we will work together in fellowship, we will work together to encourage each other and to strengthen each other in the faith, and we also promise that as the people of God, we will witness to those that are around us the gospel of Christ. Well, the Brian Baptist Church is one of the true churches that Christ has in the world. And we, we do certainly hope that there are others around us. We hope there are others in Rohnert Park and Santa Rosa and throughout our country that still preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that to be true. And there are other churches that are preaching the gospel. But we also know why we say that, that there are many that don't. There are many that have embraced a false gospel, and they're not like us. They're very much unlike us. They preach a gospel that the Apostle Paul said is not the gospel. It is a corrupt gospel. It's not good news because it condemns people to hell. Now, the problem that we face with the false church is that it's controlled by Satan. It has no interest in the promotion of the doctrines of Christ. It has its own doctrines, it promotes itself, and in the process it destroys the souls of men and women. It's Satan's tool to destroy the true church of Jesus Christ. Now these seven letters are an evaluation of churches that are either faithful or are in various stages of decline. These letters are commendations for those that are faithful, but they're warnings for those that are not. Some surrender the truth, and eventually they deny the Lord's name and his word. In fact, as we look at these seven churches, there are only two of them that remain faithful to the Lord. The others are really just a study in the decline of the church, the church in various stages of decline. The church at Ephesus is at the top of that list. It was a good church, a good doctrinal church, a good moral church, until it lost its love for Christ. 
And then from there, it's a downhill slide, it's a downhill tumble, until eventually the church looks more and more like the world, and then it comes down to the last stage. And this is where it has completely surrendered to the world, and Christ can't be found in the church. This is the me church. Christ is replaced with me, because after all, I'm the most important. We live in a in the selfie age, because a picture of me is more valuable than a picture of you. You ever notice that? Even if you take a selfie with someone else, with a friend, whose head is always biggest in the picture? <laughs> I told my son-in-law this the other day. I said, can't you just take a picture of the grandkids and stay out of it? All I see is you. But the me church, that's the one that is concerned, not concerned with Christ. They've left Christ out, and they don't even care that they've shut Him out. This is the church known as the lukewarm church, one that is of no value to the cause of Christ. Now, in this scripture, the lukewarm church is the same as the lost church. Church is actually a misnomer for it, because church, the word church, means an assembly of God's people. And so this assembly is not the Lord's. This is the Laodicean church, the Laodicean assembly, and its teachings are laced with pragmatism and self-promotion and pride and self-interest. It's a church with a membership that schemes to be rich on the earth, but they bank no treasures in heaven. It's a church far off track filled with unbelievers. It's a church that is characteristic of the age before Christ returns, and the world is overrun with these types of churches. In the last days it will be until it's difficult to find a true church among them. The true church is dwarfed by the sheer numbers of these false churches. Now one segment of these false churches defined in this passage is the cults. They're so far away from Christ, they deny His full deity as Jehovah God, the one who's the originator, the self-existent creator of everything. And that seems to be the chief perversion of doctrine that led this Laodicean church away. And we learn that by comparing Paul's letter to a nearby church, the, the church of Colossae. And he mentions their error. And he said that the letter that he wrote to them should be read to the letter at the Laodicean church, uh, read to the Laodicean church. And, and that, that letter reflects a connection between these two that they must have entered into the same doctrinal errors. And you can learn more about that from the previous messages. But in, in this sermon today, we continue to look at other errors of the church. Their problems seem to be modern because there's grown up a church today with a false gospel that is so popular that it's sweeping the world. Fueled by satellite TV and Christian broadcasting networks, this false gospel reaches around the globe. And the purveyors of this gospel. Uh, they publish millions of books. They flooded the market with their books. And they are so popular that they cross over into the secular market. And they become bestsellers even on uh, the secular market across all genres of literature. And this false gospel is what we know as the prosperity gospel. It's the promotion of riches and of health and a personal guarantee of an economic boom for those that follow it. It isn't new, because there was a church in Asia Minor 20 centuries ago. 
that believed a variation of it. The prosperity gospel that you see today is only more refined. It's more overt than it was in Laodicea 2,000 years ago. And here we find the Lord rebuking this early form of that false gospel with such force that he says their condition is shameful. He says you are poor and you're miserable, you're blind and naked. They're worldly rich but spiritually bankrupt. So we wonder, what would this letter look like if this were written today? Well, we scarcely can even understand. How does the world survive when these prosperity preachers blaspheme the truth of the Word of God? And that's the point, I think, that we need to make, that this is characteristic of the last days. And I don't know how long these days will last until Christ comes to end it, and I, d I don't know how long he's going to take, but I do know this, that as the false church increases and the churches, true churches of Christ begin to dwindle, the less people are reached with the true gospel of Christ. That must mean that the Lord is reaching the end of the elect that he will save. There isn't a more graphic representation of a church gone astray, a church that is in full apostasy than we see here in verse number 20 where Christ is standing outside of the church and he's at the door and he's knocking. He's not in the church. This church has an enemy and the enemy that they have is the gospel, their false gospel that they preach. Now can you imagine that? Riches are not their ally. Wealth was the enemy of their church. But they preach that wealth is the Christian's greatest need. That wealth is the marker of true spirituality. That those that are rich have proved they have faith in God and God's blessing is on them. But isn't it strange that Christ says the opposite? The trust in wealth made the Laodicean church have a name that is synonymous with false Christianity. When you mention the Laodicean church, you think of false Christianity. The Laodiceans trusted wealth, and they were modeled after their culture rather than Christ. And their city was very wealthy. They were the beneficiaries of it. The city was a banking center. It was a prospering as a producer of fine garments. It was a medical mecca that drew people from all over the empire to buy their healing bombs. So they had health, wealth, and prosperity, a package that's all rolled up and ready to go. These are materialistic Christians, or so they called themselves Christians. They wanted their best life now, and so they were determined to have it with no regard for receiving treasures in heaven. The world was their God, not Christ. And so because of that, for Jesus to get into this church, things must change. And so the Lord wrote them a letter to discipline them and tell them how they must change. In this third part of our outline, we're examining the Lord's discipline of the church, a church that's lost and does not have the true gospel. So this is our third part, and that is the discipline they must accept. Now, we've already been through the desire of the amen that we find in verse number 14, and we've talked about the disaster that they allowed by departing from the faith of Jesus Christ. And now we're discussing the discipline that they must accept. And the discipline is in verse number 18. What must they do? Jesus said, I counsel thee 
to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Now the discipline corresponds to three areas of complaint that he made against them. And these are reflected in verse number 17, and they're tied to the sources of their wealth. They were rich in gold because they were a banking center. They were rich from clothing because of their garment industry. And they were rich from medicine because they had a healing center. And Jesus went after those three centers of wealth with a spiritual application. And they're all reflective of their heart's condition. Now first, Christ, to enter their church, must do this, or they must do this. They must be disciplined concerning their gold. And so we look at gold, which is the discipline of values. Their value system must change. They must correct their thinking about what the Lord considers to be valuable. Is it Christ's desire for you to be wealthy? The prosperity preacher says so. In fact, I've heard many of them say that they have a personal word from God regarding this, that the Lord wants you to be wealthy, and they say that the Lord has told me to tell you that your wealth, or that your faith, rather, is demonstrated by the size of your bank account. Now, as you know, we're reading our text from the Bible, and we wouldn't be discussing this unless the Bible comments on it. Christians believe the Bible, and... That's the reason that I tell you that if you go to a church that doesn't encourage you to read and study the Bible and to carry a Bible to the church, there's a strong indication something's wrong. Without the Bible, you get only a preacher's opinion. So how do you know what he says is what God says? Well, you've got to have something to compare it to, something that enables you to see if he's telling you the truth. And so believing that the Bible is the Word of God, I need to check and see if God did in fact say what He says that God said. Last week we stopped at this point, and I said you have a homework assignment, and that homework is to take your Bible and see what the Lord has to say about wealth. The prosperity preacher says God does not want you to be poor, but His poverty detrimental to your faith and if it is where in the bible does it say so well the prosperity preacher says that you can evaluate the strength of your faith by how much money you have that poor people have poor faith and this isn't a question of whether god sometimes chooses people and gives them or blesses people with riches it's not about that because there are a few rich christians in the bible But I want to emphasize that there are few. In fact, there are very few. That's not the usual condition of the people of God in the Bible. Now, the question that we want to discover is, if you're a Christian and you're struggling financially, is that because you're deficient in your faith? And if you are content to live in poverty or to live with less than others have, does that mean that you're out of God's will? And when a prosperity preacher says, oh, here's the reason that you don't have a big house in Fountain Grove that didn't burn down, he, take, he must take his reasoning from the Bible if he says that. What does God say about those things? Does the prosperity preacher have the mind of Christ? Well, if I'm going to look at the Bible, and I want to find who, who are the people that I could say are closest to Christ? Who are the ones 
that have the mind of Christ. And they spent time with him and they know what Jesus was thinking and what he taught and what he told people they needed. Who would I go to? Well, I think that I would start with the apostles. Wouldn't you? The apostles. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 3. And I want to show you that there are two men who were closest to Jesus in the inner circle of Jesus. There are actually three of them, but we have only two here. And these men are not rich. These disciples are the first church that the Lord called out and made them his witnesses. And none of them were rich. And I can prove to you right here that two of them that were closest to Jesus, two that are in the inner circle, did not have any money. In Acts chapter 3 and verse number 1, now Peter and John, you recognize those names? Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. In verse 6, Peter and John said, We don't have any silver and gold. And I'm certain they didn't have a Gulfstream jet like Kenneth Copeland. And so are they out of God's will? The prosperity preacher says God doesn't want you to be poor, so these two apostles must have done something wrong. They have no silver and gold. Now the lame man hoped that they did. He hoped that he would receive some money from them. But instead he was healed. And then he leaped up and he praised God. And I want to ask you, you that have read the Bible, have you found any place in the Bible where it says that those that were healed by the apostles immediately went to find their wealth? Or that any apostle said to them, now that you've been healed, now that you've been saved, now that the name of Jesus has, has taken away the, the problems that you have and all the, 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 the bad health that you have, now go and claim your riches. God does not want you to be poor any longer. I haven't found that. Now here's another Notable example, lest you think, well, we just don't have enough background information to know what people in the New Testament did once they got saved and got healed. We just don't have enough information about that to make a decision, do we? Well, let's take a look. What happens to poor people that get saved? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One of Paul's regular activities was to take up offerings for the poor. He was a Baptist preacher for sure because he loved to take up an offering. If you get people together, that's what you do. You get your money, get the money from them, take up an offering. So that proves the Baptist church is apostolic. So if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, let's see, who did he take these offerings from? 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, 
We do you to wit, or we want you to know with the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded under the riches of their liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. Well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Paul applauded the Macedonian churches because they had the grace of God on them, and they showed that by generous giving to others. Now, would it have made much sense to applaud them if they were rich and there was no sacrifice involved in their giving? Now, we look further at this. It says they were poor. And they're not just regular old poor. They're deeply poor. So how can these people be both spiritual, highly spiritual, and deeply poor if God doesn't want you to be poor? Now, this is a problem for the prosperity preacher. He insists that poverty is a sign of deficient faith. But we see here, these are people with great faith because they were able to give more than they were able to give. How is that even possible? And what does it mean? Well, it means that they dug down into their resources to the things that they needed to buy their food and their clothing and to pay their rent, and they did it expecting God would take care of them. That takes faith, doesn't it? That takes great faith not to hoard, not to keep things for yourself, even when you give up the very thing that you're going to need to make your next meal. But then what about other verses? What about verses that speak of the riches of Christ? And doesn't it say that we become rich in Christ? Well, in fact, it does. And we find one of those verses in the same chapter. Go down to verse number 9. There it says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And so the prosperity preaches, there it is. I told you, you're going to be rich. But what does the Scripture tell us? Well, a good Bible student should be able to discern the riches that he speaks of can't be material riches, because if they were, then these good people at Macedonia would have already claimed the promise, and by their great faith, they would be highly rich rather than deeply poor. So the prosperity preacher lies about what God thinks. He doesn't speak for God. He has no New Testament footing. Plenty of Christians are poor, and they stay that way. Step foot outside of America, and you'll be hard-pressed to find a rich Christian. Does that mean that only American Christians are in the will of God? No, this false gospel has been ex exported from America to third world countries over those satellites that I told you about and these Christian broadcasting networks and they broadcast them to third world countries like in Africa where the prosperity that they preach is impossible. The economy of their economies of their countries make it impossible. God would have to change the entire economic structure of the entire society to make it happen. And does it happen? No. There's not one in those poor villages who hears this. And there's so much of it being taught. There's not one of them that believes it and sends in their last resource to the prosperity preacher that gets anything in return. If material riches are what God desires for His people, then we should see Christians all across the world that are wealthy. 
Every Christian should be able to get in on it. And I dare say, folks, that there are more good Christians in those places than we can find in American churches. Now let me advise you of another problem in false Christianity, and this one falls on the other side of the issue. Because there are some who say, as I've just told you, God wants you to be rich, while on the other side of the question, there are say, no, God wants you to be poor. And they'll say, the most virtuous Christians are poor Christians, ones that have taken a vow of poverty. And they misinterpret Matthew 5, 3. This is their main text verse where Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so the lie of Catholicism says that the saint is the one who takes a vow of poverty. The saint is the one who gives all that he has to the church and enriches the church and its prelates. And that the, the vow of poverty will ensure that you get a spot in heaven and you get a quicker exit from purgatory. Is that what Jesus taught? Well, it turns out they don't speak for Jesus either. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I think that spirit pretty much defines the meaning of the passage. He's not speaking of anything material. He's speaking of humility. It's those who are not me first. It's the people that realize their spiritual condition before God. They know who they are. They're nothing. They have nothing good to offer God. There's nothing that commends them to God. And it's the same as Jesus taught these people as he discipled the Laodicean church. And the point of that discussion is to show you that God's value system has nothing at all to do with dollars and euros and pesos or any other of the world's currencies. That is not God's gold standard. Now something very important is revealed about the deceitfulness of the prosperity preacher. Now I'd like you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. The prosperity preacher does not believe what God says about wealth. And so God has something to say about him. And I know this is what God thinks because I have the written word to back it up. This is what Paul wrote to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 3. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about with questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supporting, or rather supposing, that gain is godliness." From such, withdraw thyself. Oh, whoa, wait just a minute there. Wait, wait here. What does God think of the prosperity preacher? They do not consent to the wholesome word of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their doctrine is ungodly. Now listen, he says they're proud. They know nothing. Their minds are corrupt. Why? Because they suppose gain is godliness. And so what are you supposed to do with them? Get away from such, withdraw thyself. The prosperity preacher says, if your faith is good, you will sow your seeds with me, send in the money, and God will turn that into fabulous wealth. And if he doesn't, then your faith is deficient. No gain, no godliness. We go on reading. What is godliness? It's not money. 
But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. Food and raiment, be content with that. But they that will be rich fall into temptations and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Does that sound at all like God's value system is anchored in personal wealth? Does it sound as if God wants you to put everything that you have into the pursuit of riches? And what will it get you? Verse number 9. But they that will be rich fall into temptations and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That's bad. To be drowned in destruction and perdition means hell. It means to lose both your body and soul in hell. Now Paul makes a comparison here. He says that's like, it's like drowning. Well, let me tell you about that. The image that Paul cast in our minds is that of a sinking ship. And do you remember the story of Paul when he was to be taken as a prisoner to Rome? They put him on a ship and there was a great storm that arose and the ship was tossed around. They couldn't steer it. And they were at the mercy of the elements. And on this ship there was a valuable cargo. They were taking wheat to Italy. And they tried everything they could to save the cargo. They cast out the tackling of the ship to lighten it and that left them without much ability to maneuver it should they survive the storm. And when it was apparent that there wasn't any help, they decided it's either us or it's the cargo. And so they threw the wheat into the sea. They got rid of the merchandise. They got rid of the material. They even lost the valuable ship, but their lives were saved. That's the imagery that Paul uses in First Timothy. Those that hold on to the cargo... Those that hold on to the goods that they have and look for salvation and good graces in their material things lose not only the ship and the cargo, but they lose their lives as well. The prosperity preacher preaches a false gospel and he puts people in danger of losing their souls. So do you think that pretty white smile of Joel Osteen and others is good news? No. It's a dangerous gospel that drowns people in destruction and perdition. They are overthrown with no hope of recovery. Why? They trusted the wrong thing. They didn't believe the wholesome words of Christ. His is a gospel that says we must give up self. And it says we must give up riches. We must give up the pursuit of the world because that value system is not God's value. He values eternal life and that doesn't have anything to do with how much money you have in the bank and if you don't believe what he says you'll perish in the fires of an eternal hell the devil dresses himself in fine clothing he appears in the disguise of a finely tailored suit with diamond rings with rolex watches and bmws and bentleys and the gulfstream jet and he says all of this can be yours believe that god will make you rich and you will be so you won't need to be like the Macedonians. You don't need to bring your money for the salvation of others. Bring it for you. 
bring it for you because God promises he will increase a hundredfold and it'll be good for you because that's all it counts isn't it it's the Laodicean church it's a wealthy church that offers shipwreck destruction and perdition let me tell you something else about the prosperity preacher I've told you some here's more the prosperity preacher will not lead the church out of the world if you believe him you'll not claim the promise of chapter 3 verse number 10 if Christ should come today you won't be kept from the tribulation no the prosperity preacher leads you into chapter 4 and you don't want to go into chapter 4 being in this world the Laodicean church doesn't escape the world it'll not escape the time of tribulation it'll head straight into it it'll miss the trumpet call of Christ when he comes and that's the church that will be left behind and so the value system of the Laodicean church must change the worth that God counts is not the amount you have in the bank account so don't despair if your checkbook is light your spiritual value is not tied to it and your faith is not tied to it now I believe that we ought to do as the people of God we ought to give to support our ministries but I'll never tell you that if you give, you're, you'll receive more and you'll be rich if you give. The Macedonian churches didn't get rich because they gave. They became content because they gave. Their lives were enriched in the things of God because they gave. And that rat race of getting rich like the people around them was no consequence to them because it is of no consequence to God. It's of no consequence to good spiritual health. It means it's going to kill your health and ruin your soul if that's what you put all your efforts into. The Bible's not concerned with material wealth. It's concerned with increasing spiritual worth. And there is a way to stockpile treasure in heaven that will last for eternity. Paul said, we brought nothing into the world. It's certain we take nothing out. Not long ago, there were some new excavations at the pyramids of Giza. The ancient Egyptians stockpiled treasures for their pharaohs to use in the afterlife. Now, as you know, most of those tombs have been opened and robbed, and the treasures have been taken out and put into museums. But recently, there was another tomb that was found, hadn't yet been opened, and in those labyrinths of the tombs, there were fabulous riches. So those treasures were carried out and taken away because they were still there. The pharaohs couldn't take it with them it's certain Paul said we carry nothing out so what's the point stockpiling all these things that have no eternal value now I could go on and on with you I have plenty of ammunition to shoot down prosperity preachers but let's just take one more and I'll close out the message today I want you to turn to Luke chapter 12 and here we hear from the master himself about riches he gave a parable concerning it, and actually Jesus taught about money in many of his parables. And here's one that we all had better listen to. As I preach to you, I know most of you this morning, I think I know all of you, and I, as far as I know, I don't think that there's anybody in this room that's been caught up into prosperity preaching. I don't think I know anybody in here that's rich, got rich through any of it. 
But I guarantee you that with all the false churches that are around us and with all the preachers around us who teach these things and the Laodicean age in which we live, I promise you, you're going to run into people among your family and your friends, neighbors, whoever it may be. If you decide that you're going to go out and do what I said in the beginning of the message and to speak the gospel to people, then you're going to run into some of these. Some of these people who put all their faith and trust in some prosperity preacher and what he says, you'll run into them. So what are you going to do with it? How are you going to deal with them? How do you deal with the false gospel? I've given you some tools today. You sit down with them and you use the scriptures I use. But look at this one. Jesus himself in Luke. And he spake a parable unto them saying, verse 16, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. How can you be rich toward God? How will your soul be saved? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Just this. Change your value system. Value the person of Christ. Value God's work. Make yourself busy in the Lord's work and walk closely with him. Oh, he has entrusted the church with the gospel he made it our responsibility to take it to the world so that out of the world he could call those that he's chosen. And those who make themselves rich in the gospel are not Laodicean. They're not part of the world system. They're healthy and wealthy in the treasures of heaven. So great faith is not tied to your bank account at Chase Bank or at the Exchange Bank or the Redwood Credit Union. No, great faith is the one that shows itself in souls delivered to the kingdom of God. And the Bible says there is a wage paid for that faithfulness. That's our value system. And may God help us to be true to the right value system. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let us pray. Father, we thank you today for your word and for the truth that we have learned here from Jesus Christ himself in this letter to the church at Laodicea. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to look to the world system, but to find our values in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work that you have given us to do to spread this gospel to the world so that you may call out the ones that you have chosen to salvation. Lord, that is our job. That's the job of the church. That's where all of our value lies. And that's what we're rewarded for. Lord, bless your people today. Help us to dedicate ourselves to your value system. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.
www.bebaptist.org.